Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Trigger warning. This podcast involves discussions of child sexual abuse and pedophilia. Listener discretion is advised. I read a book last week. It was Crime and Punishment. I'm kidding. It was The Care and Keeping of You. Uh, no, it was Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. Jesus Christ, relax. I haven't read this book in full in a couple of months at this point, in spite of the fact that I've been thinking about some version of it every single waking hour. And this read was different. The more I read this book, the more I realize that how it's framed to you truly is everything. Humbert Humbert, the unrepentant child sex abuser who tries to win over the reader's favor by occasionally demonstrating self-awareness and remorse, although the sincerity of that remorse is very much up for debate. There is some indication of this on every single page. Humbert Humbert is a man who is not just an abuser of children and not just an asshole academic. He is obsessed with control in ways that jumped out to me more than ever before. And I don't just mean this in regards to his abuse of Dolores Hayes. It's a need to control virtually everyone around him. But it shows up more dangerously when dealing with women and girls. I'll just list them off here. When describing his habit of ogling young girls at the park as a young adult, sometimes brushing up against them or saying suggestive things, he expresses anxiety that he is traumatizing or harming them. Early in the book, he meets with a French sex worker named Monique who says that she is of age, but Humbert thinks she looks younger. After their first night together, Humbert pays her a bonus. Monique is thrilled, and when he asks her to come back the next day, Monique arrives looking more confident. Humbert remarks that she looks much older now and loses interest. When his first wife, Valeria, who he hates, tells him that she's leaving him for another man, Humbert admits he's mainly furious that she decided to leave him. Again, always control. His criticisms for Charlotte Hayes are harsh and petty. He hates her for being in a book club. He hates her for doing her hair. He hates her for having tourist art at her house. And he wants you to hate her for the same reasons. He mentions that at more than one point, he is considered raping a young girl, then shooting himself in the head before he meets Dolores. He, I will remind you, was held in mental health facilities 
several times before meeting Dolores Hayes and brags about learning how to control the mental health professionals treating him so that he can leave sooner without any consequences. Humbert's short marriage to Charlotte Hayes includes constant strategy on his part. He makes sure that there's some misinformation about him and their wedding announcement, and he tells neighbors that he's Dolores's biological father so that they won't check in on him after he's skipped town. Same for what Humbert chooses to include about his and Charlotte's conversations. When allegedly recalling her love letter to him with 100% accuracy, he skips over parts that detail Charlotte's personal trauma and focuses on passages that make her sound desperate and silly. When she finds out that he's planning to rape and abduct her daughter, he quickly tells the reader that he didn't need to include what he said to her in the moments before she died. So, canonically, we have no idea what happened in the last conversation Charlotte had in her life before she was mysteriously and conveniently run over by a car. Humbert is constantly doing the math on how long he thinks he'll be attracted to Dolores or to any child, detailing at length when they go into puberty, what their bodies look like, what their measurements are, how to corner them without consequences. He mentions at one point that if Lolita is adapted into a movie, here's where a fade should go in the movie. He lies to hotels, he lies to neighbors as they move from place to place, he changes his and Dolores' names and forces her to play along as he lies to her teachers. He controls who Dolores is allowed to see on the road, and when she is allowed to see others, he is always supervising or leering from a distance, then often punishing her for relating with her peers in a way he doesn't understand. This was always a major part of the book, but the strategy and the constantness that he controls Dolores sexually never stops being horrifying. Starting from very early on, he begins to deny her motel breakfasts the summer she's 12 years old before she has sex with him. And of course, the most significant way that Humbert Humbert asserts his control over this narrative is how he's attempting to control you and me, the gentlewomen of the jury, as he puts it. That's the game of the book. Can he convince you he is pitiable enough to be redeemed? On this reading, something that stuck out to me is Humbert's habit for stalling a page or two before describing the abuse of Dolores. He will sometimes emphasize his restraint before saying something horrible. Look how long he went before acting on his abusive impulses. He'll sometimes pause to implicate Dolores before we even know what's happened. Quote, first she would tempt me, then thwart me, unquote, he explains to us at one point, all in an attempt to set up the abusive scene as something she was somehow inviting. Memorably, sandwiched between sections detailing abuse, Humbert assures us that he is not a rapist or an abuser, and here's why. Quote, We do not rape as good soldiers do. We are unhappy, mild, dog-eared gentlemen, sufficiently well-integrated to control our urge in the presence of adults, but ready to give years and years of life for one chance to touch a nymphette. Emphatically, no killers are we. Poets never kill. Unquote. And again, before he admits to raping Dolores at the Enchanted Hunter's Hotel before she knows her mother has been killed, Humbert says flat out, it was she who seduced me. Same goes for whenever he talks about only giving Dolores her allowance when she fulfills her quote-unquote basic obligations, as if being raped is a 13-year-old's obligation. This is, of course, the job of an unreliable narrator, but it was interesting to note this strategy, make an appeal to the jury's emotions immediately before admitting to the crime, implicate the victim immediately before admitting to the crime, see how many points that wins you. And as you know, this strategy of Humbert Humbert's has worked on many readers over the years. And then there's how he treats Rita. Do you remember Rita? No one remembers Rita. 
I remembered Rita this time. For a writer who's not known for his female characters, I noticed the women who exist on the fringes of Humbert Humbert's skewed narrative more clearly when going through Nabokov's prose. Rita stuck out to me a lot this time, and if you don't remember her, it's because she does not appear in any major adaptation, but she's Humbert's companion after Dolores runs away for about two years before Dolores reaches out again when she's pregnant and 17 and hoping to borrow some money from him. As usual, Humbert writes about Rita pretty condescendingly, but these details jumped out. Rita is an alcoholic whose brother is a politician that gives her a stipend to stay away from him. She is arrested at one point for stealing from a man at a bar. Humbert doesn't care to find out where she is for a couple of days, and then it's revealed that she didn't steal from anyone. The man at the bar just said she did, so it didn't look like he was cheating on his wife. When Humbert gets a job at a university for a year, he doesn't let Rita live with him. Instead, he gets her a trailer in a trailer park nearby because he thinks that she'll embarrass him around his academic colleagues. He mocks Rita's mother for thinking that he would ever marry her. When Rita is sober, she reveals that she is terrified of being abandoned. You get an added bonus if you know who she is at the start of the book, because fictional forward writer Dr. John Ray tells us that she's still alive and that she's married a hotel owner in Florida. Kind of a weird full circle moment because Humbert Humbert's father was a hotel owner. What we don't know is whether she's sober or happy or what she thinks about her life or what she thinks about Humbert Humbert because Humbert just didn't care. But Nabokov, even writing through the careless lens of Humbert, still manages to tell us a fair amount about the character even though most readers tend not to pick up on her. I found similar details sticking out with Charlotte Hayes. In the two references to what appears to be the greatest trauma of Charlotte's life, the loss of her baby son and becoming a single mother in the 1940s after her husband Harold dies. Humbert offhandedly mentions that Charlotte speaks of this lost son often, a boy who died at age two when Dolores was a little older, which means that Dolores knew and remembered this brother. When Charlotte admits her love for Humbert in a letter, Humbert alludes to there being entire pages about this lost son that he just flushes down the toilet. He quite literally flushes these pages down the toilet. For someone who claims to have a photographic memory for detail, Humbert only seems to be able to clearly recall information that make people he feels are in his way look bad and he forgets or glazes over anything that might endear a reader to them. Think about how we may see Charlotte a little differently if she were presented to us as a woman who is struggling under the weight of losing a child while having to raise a daughter on her own. Now, I won't argue against the notion that Charlotte seems to be a very flawed parent. She is impatient, unkind, and yells at Dolores constantly and needlessly. But this behavior is presented by Humbert mainly in a vacuum. Charlotte and Dolores have suffered the loss of half of their family together, and that reality is referenced only twice in the entire book. How does Dolores feel about this? If she ever brings it up to Humbert, which by his account she wouldn't have because she didn't trust him with anything personal, then we never hear about it. Which brings me back, as it always does, to Dolores Hayes. While we're not reminded of it very often, by age 12, Dolores Hayes has lost her entire family. A common criticism of Lolita and why it has yielded such garbage adaptations is because Dolores is barely in the book, Humbert is the protagonist. But the continued fixation on who Dolores is in fan communities, in academics, indicates to me that there is not an insignificant look into who she is in the book's pages. The problem is that these details are embedded in and presented by the villain who is offering up 
50 times more information about himself. There is at least enough for her to be a character that hundreds of thousands have attempted to reclaim in the past 65 years. And as painful and tragic as some of these details are, after all we've talked about in this series, I did find some comfort in finding details that we do have about the few years of Dolores Hayes' life leading up to her death, which took place less than a week short of her becoming a legal adult. She's born on January 1st, 1935, and dies on Christmas Day in 1952, not quite getting to 18. Everything with her is cut too short but here are some details that stuck out to me this time around. Another list, if you'll indulge me. Dolores doesn't like to be looked at when she's been crying. She prefers privacy. She is naturally intelligent, and her ability at school and when playing tennis and in the drama club are complimented frequently by her teachers. Her schoolwork only really begins to suffer when her at-home sexual abuse becomes intolerable. When she's with Humbert in public, Dolores quickly develops a habit of, as Humbert puts it, quote, drawing in as many potential witnesses into her orbit as she could, unquote. I never noticed this before, but Dolores is frequently trying to point out that something isn't right here. They read to me now as early attempts to get others around her to ask her if she's okay or what's going on. She tries to convince Humbert to go to movies with other families. She points out her license plate to strangers to point out how far away she is from home. When she's 14, Dolores learns how to pretend to laugh at boys' jokes at schools. Very relatable. There's a scene where she throws a party. Then when it doesn't go as well as she wants it to, she calls everyone who went a loser. She says, ugh, those are the worst boys I've ever met. And for a second, it's like, oh yeah, she's a 14-year-old who's insecure that her party was kind of weird. A moment that really stuck out to the point that I can't believe I never noticed it before now Humbert cites one of Dolores's several friends at Beardsley, a girl named Eva Rosen, as a nymphette. It sounds like Dolores and Eva spent quite a bit of time together, something that Humbert would have been pervertedly obvious about enjoying, saying many times in text that anyone he deemed to be a nymphette in or out of Dolores's orbit, he considered to be ripe for objectification and harassment. Dolores, as Humbert offhandedly puts it, quote, dropped Eva for some reason before I had had any time to enjoy in my modest way her fragrant presence in the Humbert open house, unquote. How I see this outcome now is Dolores knowing how Humbert looks at and behaves towards potential prey, and she protected her friend by getting rid of her. She makes close friendships with girls her own age throughout the story, and it's with them that we see she holds the most trust. She loves movies. She goes through a phase of bullying other students and teachers who get to go on dates with other people. And again, the school fails her by going to her abuser for help. Dolores is extremely active in her escape from Humbert. When Humbert realizes that they're being followed, she erases the license plate number that he writes down in secret. She tries to drive their car away at one point to distract him. She stays calm and determined to escape as the rapist she is traveling with is growing dangerously paranoid. She tells him repeatedly she knows what is happening to her to some extent. She calls the Enchanted Hunters, that hotel where you raped me. She tells him she thinks that he killed Charlotte and wants to get away from him. She knows what's going on. 
And in the end, Dolores escapes not because she's this criminal genius, as some adaptations seem to imply. She escapes because Humbert is not only not doing well, he doesn't know that much about her. And by his admittance, he finds her bratty and uninteresting and not that smart when she isn't behaving under his control. Even Humbert admits this by the end, quote, I knew nothing about my darling's mind, unquote, because he didn't care to ask, and she didn't trust him with anything personal. The final thing that stood out to me uh, is about Dolores and tennis. This is brought up towards the end of the book. Even though Dolores is the best tennis player at her school, she never joins the team, partially because she's more interested in a drama club, but a teacher mentions that Dolores has this habit of playing an amazing tennis game and then letting someone else win at the last second. Why the heck is she so polite? The coach asks Humbert. And as usual, we don't learn why from Dolores, but it's a small moment that just kicked me in the gut this time. Tennis was something that Humbert had made her take lessons in early on into her abduction because he wanted her to. She resisted it, ended up being pretty good, but isn't comfortable or confident enough to squarely win the game even though she easily could. Even if she didn't want to be a tennis player, this small moment says so much. Her potential is unquestionably held back at this point in her life by Humbert's control and presence. I wish we knew more about her, but let's go over what we've got. This is Lolita Podcast. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Lolita Podcast. My name is Jamie Loftus, and today I want to talk about the future of Dolores Hayes' legacy. And I want to do so through revisiting interviews I've done with a wide array of people for this series. I'll also be speaking to two filmmakers and CSA survivors whose work I love, Eva Vives and Jess Merwin, and a CSA survivor and sex educator, Zoe Ligon, about what basics in sex education we are missing in what we include in modern media. But before we get there, I wanted to say one last thing on our boy Nabokov. This came up at length in our episode about his life and his biography, but I still find myself receiving a pretty large volume of questions about it. That being, why did Vladimir Nabokov write Lolita? I mean, the answer, first of all, is like, how the fuck should I know? But let's go with this. Nabokov was a flawed person, which I tried to unpack in depth in our episode on him, and he lived at the center of some of the most traumatic events of the 20th century. And nobody knows exactly why he wrote Lolita, but I do think that the perspective that it was just to be edgy or take a literary risk is a little bit reductive. Based on his track record, that's likely a part of the reason, but the reason that I'm always able to think of Lolita, the book, as truly anti-child sex abuse is, first, because you're told that the narrator is an irredeemable villain on nearly every single page, and second, because Vladimir Nabokov was subjected to sexual abuse as a child. And while he never discussed it publicly at length, it appears in his work 
constantly. Now, obviously, Nabokov doesn't strictly write what he knows all the time. Of course not. But Nabokov's primary biographer, Brian Boyd, mentions explicitly that Nabokov was a victim of abuse from his uncle in his two-volume biography of the author. He also confirmed this to me in an interview, and Nabokov mentions it himself in his memoir, Speak Memory. He would invariably take me upon his knee after lunch and, while two young footmen were clearing the table in the empty dining room, fondle me with crooning sounds and fancy endearments. Readers of Lolita will know that this exact scenario appears in the book's pages. Humbert Humbert bounces 12-year-old Dolores on his lap the summer he moves in with her and her mother and ejaculates, then tells the reader he's certain that she hasn't noticed and there was no harm done. But listen to how Humbert describes Dolores's behavior afterward. Quote, Immediately afterward, as if we had been struggling and now my grip had eased, she rolled off the sofa and jumped to her feet, to her foot, rather, in order to attend to the formidably loud telephone that may have been ringing for ages as far as I was concerned. There she stood and blinked, cheeks aflame, hair awry, her eyes passing over me lightly as they did over the furniture. And as she listened or spoke, she kept tapping the edge of the table with the slipper she held in her hand. Blessed be the Lord, she had noticed nothing." Unquote. That doesn't sound to me like a 12-year-old who has no idea what's going on. She's frazzled, nervous, eager to get away from him while trying to remain calm. And the fact that she knows what's happening is confirmed two years later in the book when Humbert and Dolores argue before leaving Beardsley. She says explicitly in this scene that Humbert has been molesting her since that summer. She did know what was going on there. And in this scenario, it seems pretty likely that Nabokov is seeing his own experience in Dolores's, not Humbert's. Themes of child sex abuse appear in his work a staggering amount. We've recapped it in the past. There's The Enchanter, the novella that was a precursor to Lolita. There's Ada, a post-Lolita work that features a young girl being sexually abused by her family members in 1969. The examples go on and on. And while I think the misread of these themes can be extremely harmful, the information we have about Nabokov is more suggestive that he is working through experiences where he was a victim. There's no example or implication in anything I've ever read about him of his being abusive, particularly towards children. I've received similar lines of questioning about Nabokov's participation in the 1962 Stanley Kubrick adaptation. Nabokov is credited as the writer of the screenplay and was even nominated for an Oscar for it. Kubrick's Lolita pretty squarely misses the point, as we've discussed in the third episode of this show, but to assume that Nabokov's script was the one that made it to the screen would be to fundamentally misunderstand how these kinds of big-budget projects are produced. Nabokov wrote a number of drafts of this screenplay. He wrote a squarely rejected four-hour draft of the Lolita script in the 60s that was understandably turned down, then a two-hour draft that he was less enthusiastic about that still includes the John Ray Jr. unreliable narrator framing and does portray Humbert as a villain, not quite as explicitly as it does in the book, but it's still clear he's an abuser. Neither of these drafts appear on screen in really any way. Nabokov is credited for contract reasons, and because Stanley Kubrick and producer-slash-rapist James Harris were smart enough to know that having the author's name on the script increased the legitimacy of their project. But it's pretty well documented that the shooting script was written by Stanley Kubrick and James Harris, not Nabokov. Of course, that doesn't mean that Nabokov didn't eventually capitulate to what had clearly become the dominant cultural narrative surrounding Lolita. 
Here's an interview from the Paris Review in 1967. Humbert Humbert is a vain and cruel wretch who manages to appear touching. That epithet, in its true tear-iridized sense, can only apply to my poor girl. No ambiguity there. Same goes with how he displayed his anger about Humbert's word nymphette was translated in the dictionary. I think the harmful drudges who define today in popular dictionaries the word nymphette as a very young but sexually attractive girl without any additional comment or reference should have their knuckles wrapped. But as time goes on, it appears that Nabokov becomes a little more resigned to, and at times even somewhat permissive, of how Dolores Hayes' character enmeshes into the cultural consciousness. Toward the end of his life, there are some examples of him starting to refer to Dolores in the same flowery, nymph-like language that Humbert does. No, I shall never regret Lolita. She was like the composition of a beautiful puzzle, its composition and its solution at the same time, since one is a mirror view of the other, depending on the way you look. Of course she completely eclipsed my other works, at least those I wrote in English. The real life of Sebastian Knight, Bend Sinister, my short stories, my book of recollections. But I cannot grudge her this. There is a queer, tender charm about that mythical nymphette. He also ends up easing up on his adamance that no young girls appear on the cover of his most famous work. We can speculate on why this was. He never gives a reason. It just sort of happens over time. Nabokov is a person who can really slip through your fingers once you think you understand him, often within the same interview. He'll defend Dolores one moment, then say his work is completely apolitical and he doesn't feel one way or the other the next. Here's another quote from the 1967 Paris Review interview when he was asked about his quote-unquote sense of immorality about the relationship between Lolita and Humbert. No, it is not my sense of the immorality of the Humbert-Humbert-Lolita relationship that is strong. It is Humbert's sense. He cares. I do not. I do not give a damn for public morals in America or elsewhere. Nabokov will usually distance himself from his work morally and personally, but it's undoubtedly true that some of the themes of his work overlap with his lived experience. How you can claim to write about child sex abuse apolitically is kind of beyond me. But my point is, Nabokov's attitudes towards his own work and his most famous character fluctuated. But what is unfortunately true is that defending Dolores Hayes is a full-time job. I can attest to that. And it would have been a difficult task to hold up while continuing to write other books. On top of that, the cultural Lolita figure is part of what made Nabokov rich and able to retire from teaching to write in a European hotel until his death. Of course, much of this should be attributed to his also being a brilliant writer, but he'd been a brilliant writer for decades, and it wasn't until this controversy, this cultural sensation, the movie adaptations, and the mass misunderstanding of who Dolores Hayes and Humbert Humbert are that he was suddenly set for life. I mean, it's, it's a little depressing. If the general public understood Humbert Humbert to be an unrepentant abuser instead of a potentially redeemable tragic hero, and Dolores Hayes was an abused child instead of this mastermind seductress, who knows how that would have affected the story's ability to generate money back in the 1950s and 60s. Nabokov loved chess. He dabbled in composing new chess problems throughout his life, and in one of his early novels, The Lucian Defense, the arc of the story essentially becomes the novelization of a chess problem. That's not true of Lolita, but there's no doubt that Humbert Humbert is playing a game with the reader. 
and he's employing quite a bit of strategy in how he's playing it. His goal isn't to win at chess, it's, I think, to get you to empathize with him enough to believe that he genuinely loved Dolores Hayes, and that abuse was an unfortunate part of that tragic love. His goal, his game, is to win you over. And the first time I read Lolita, I lost that game. I was 12, and on top of obviously not being a very sophisticated reader, I was surrounded by pop culture and people that were not really challenging of the power dynamics between Dolores and Humbert. The only reactions I got to having the book at that age were either, oh my god, don't read that, or it's not that big a deal, just read it. No one knew how to or wanted to talk to me about it. In school, we got warned about the bodily threat of strangers, but certainly not the bodily threat of people we knew. The first time I read this book, I just didn't have the tools to recognize what was wrong with this power dynamic. I read Love Story on the cover, I read Lemony Snicket Loves This Book, and I went from there. And this mass misunderstanding is no one individual's fault. It's not Nabokov's fault. It's not Lemony Snicket's fault. It's not Lana Del Rey's fault. It's not my parents. It's not my teacher. It's a lot of systems and individuals within those systems that had to be disinterested enough or too uncomfortable to talk to a kid about this sort of abuse in order for me to take Humbert at his word for years. So if you misread Lolita on the first try, particularly if you are doing so as a young person connecting with Dolores, it's okay to forgive yourself for being ill-equipped and to move forward. That's what I'm going to do. So, is it worthwhile to attempt to adapt this story again? To arrive at an answer, I went back through the interviews I've done for this show, and I wanted to share a couple of insights that stuck out to me. First, here's Bindu Bonsanath, author of the essay, How Lolita Freed Me from My Own Humbert. I mean, I think it's definitely relevant to public discussion now. Um, I, unfortunately, as long as these kinds of uh, things exist, I think it always will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and sorry, the first part of your question. Oh, about adaptations. Yeah. If it would. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the uh, new literature around it is kind of in a way, adapting it, but telling it from the POV of a woman, whether it's nonfiction and it's someone who identified with the text, or I feel like it's very common. I, I see it where the abuser gives um, a woman, a young woman, this book because they think it's romantic um, right. and normalizes. Yeah, because they do. They give it as it, like you know, to normalize and kind of, um, I don't know, make their, you know, their gross actions seem kind of like forbidden and, and, and whatever. So I, yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, there's ways to responsibly adapt it. And I feel like those would be not only still relevant, but helpful. Um, because I feel like there's a lot of course correction that needs to be done around, around the novel and its legacy. Here's a little bit of a conversation I had with Dr. Lucia Williams, founder of La Prev, the Laboratory for Violence Analysis and Prevention in Brazil, about what a new adaptation would need to course correct in order to succeed. Because I think that people don't understand about child sexual abuse Mm -hmm. enough. For example, they think that it's rare they think that it hardly ever happens, and it's very, very, very common, mm-hmm. right? Of course, there's different degrees. You know, it could be something very mild. It could be something that was very intense and lasted for years, like in her case. Mm-hmm. 
So, and they don't understand the complexity, the dynamics, how hard it is for the child to speak, you know, how hard it is for the judicial system to deal with a crime like that, that you have the witness who is a, a, a little child mm-hmm. and, uh, and you have an adult who is very powerful. Mm-hmm. We've come a long way having protocols, you know, to, to talk, to, to interview kids so we, that we don't contaminate the data and all that. But it's not something that, you know, everybody knows. Here is Sarah Weinman, author of The Real Lolita, who has also reported on Sue Lyon's abuse at the hands of James Harris. No adaptation of Lolita that I have been able to source has ever been spearheaded by a woman. It's all been the province of men. And so if it was entirely female-driven, what kind of Lolita adaptation would result? So that's what I would want to see. I think it's possible. Just like when there have been sort of book rewrites or homages to Lolita, the ones that have worked the best are written by women. And Alison Wood, author of the memoir Being Lolita. I believe that an adaptation Lolita would need to be met with a critical eye, Mm -hmm. a feminist point of view, and an understanding of the cultural context of Lolita and what it means today. So I wonder if maybe an adaptation of Lolita is really more so like maybe a story like mine, Mm -hmm. which is sort of the real story and acknowledging the danger that it has while also trying to respect and admire the work of art that it stems from. I don't know if, if adapting Lolita by Daddy Vlad <laughs> is a worthy cause anymore. Mm-hmm. But if if some badass feminist wanted to do it, I'd, I'd be here for it. Not everyone's going to agree on this, and I certainly understand the counter argument. But I do think that it's possible to make a good adaptation of Lolita. But to do it right, and to do it ethically, and to get the financial support needed for an adaptation to make the same level of impact that a Kubrick or a Line adaptation did would be an absolute hell of an uphill battle. In order to ensure that Dolores's reality is presented to an audience, I'm very on board with what Bindu, Sarah, and Allison describe. You need to build a team like this carefully, include survivors and specialized therapists, and not prioritize making Humbert likable and marketable above making it clear that he's a child sex abuser. I also feel that given the experiences that girls and women have had playing Lolita or comparable roles where they are abused poses a gigantic risk in live action. A risk I think is too great to chance. So the way I see this working is as an animated movie. And in terms of telling the viewer who the unreliable narrator is, I think animation honestly works better. It's all easier said than done, because that's not even talking about getting it released. But I do think it's possible and that it could be worthwhile. So I wanted to talk to people who could speak on how to move forward in this arena. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity 
for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Whether it's with adapting Lolita or just taking steps to course correct the cognitive dissonance that exists around addressing child sex abuse in media. To talk a little bit about her experience with Lolita, and what she feels needs to change about sex education in order to prevent stories like Lolita from being received for anything less than what they are, I spoke to my friend, Zoe Ligon. Let's take a listen. Hello, I'm Zoe Ligon, and I am a sex educator, a journalist, an author. I recently published Carnal Knowledge, Sex Education You Didn't Get in School with my friend Elizabeth Renstrom. And I also sell sex toys for a living. I've had my own sex toy company for five years now. Um, But a lot of what I do is really kind of like entertainment combined with education. So I've been calling myself a sex edutainer lately. (laughs) I believe I stumbled upon the 90s film version, the Adrian Lyon (laughs) rendition of Lolita in a similar fashion to you. I believe I was, you know, also watching the multi-part YouTube thing (laughs) in my, um, (laughs) <laughs> my bedroom, you know, like checking the door to make sure nobody came in. Yeah. Um, I definitely remember being aware of how taboo it was, but also thinking, wow, this is so hot. And what's so weird about it is that I don't even remember whether I've read the book or not. I feel wow. as though I was already aware of the differences between the book and the movie. So for that reason, I think I may have read it at some point, Mm -hmm. but um, 
one thing that uh, childhood trauma does to you is completely wipes out your memory of some things. So I don't know how much of it is just that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I should say I didn't think it was hot, but I was also a young uh I was I was 14 when I started dating an 18 year old. And obviously, you know, four years is not as much of an age difference as uh, Lolita and Humbert. However, at those very formative years, it was like I was in a relationship with an adult. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really was in a lot of relationships with older men where I had no concept of how the age difference alone is just a prime environment for abuse when someone has power over you. And Mm. regardless of how mature I felt, it's like there is no way to have a equal relationship when there is a huge power imbalance. And in most cases, there is. It's so hard to leave the cycle of abuse, Mm. especially when you're just so much looking forward to that like green zone or safe zone of like, oh, I'm being adored and showered with love and gifts. And this can happen in any relationship. We're not just talking about ones with a huge age disparity um, or, you know, inappropriate relationships, but uh, you're always going to be going back to the the yellow zone where you're like walking on eggshells, knowing something bad is going to happen. And then of course, like the red zone where, the actual abuse is going down and then you go back to the green zone apologies. I'm so sorry. I'm never going to do this again. Mm -hmm. And when you're just really programmed into that pattern, you get used to that roller coaster ride, but even in consensual adult relationships, this is a thing. So then when you put that huge age disparity into it, it's so hard to leave for me. Uh, entering a relationship at the age of 14 with someone much older than me was a way I could say to my father, who was my abuser, like, Mm -hmm. I am somebody else's sexual property, so you can't look at me the same way you used to. Um, Not being sexualized by my father was very important to me, so I would always be, you know, just hiding my body, just trying to avoid anything that made me seem adult in any way. Um, and then that energy was all refocused onto my abusive teenage relationship. It's not as simple as, you know, comprehensive sex education. I had comprehensive sex education, didn't talk about, you know, boundaries or pleasure, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to my school district, you know, we talked about anatomy and stuff and I still, you know, fell into very abusive dynamics. Um, it's really difficult to create any change when, you know, even if you have a parent who's supporting you with all the information you need or school is supporting you, doesn't matter if the media around you is sending you the polar opposite messages. And I personally think that we often use porn as a scapegoat in media for all of the harmful messages we have about sex. Absolutely. There is a lot of porn that depicts abuse and rape and is all over the Internet, given our free streaming access to porn, Mm -hmm. although that is changing due to SESTA, FOSTA, Mm -hmm. other legislation 
that is far more recent than that. Total side note. Porn as a medium is not to blame for all the messed up messages we have about sex. It is the individual directors, producers, and, you know, white men at the top of the food chain, at least up until recently when we have a more performer-centric model of porn with things like OnlyFans, ManyVids, etc. I think what what makes me feel so sad about the sex education I didn't receive is how I missed all of the messaging around um, bodily autonomy. Mm -hmm. I knew about the function of sex and pregnancy, but when it came to like knowing that my body is my body and you know, I don't have to hug uncle so-and-so if I don't want to. And we see this all the time with uh, kids where there's this assumption like, oh, your family, like you can sit on their lap. You can, you can do all these things. Or it's like even things like tickling for me was a, a big one where tickling was used in a very inappropriate way to touch me in very inappropriate places. But I had no understanding that that was that was a boundary I was allowed to set with my body even with my own family members so sex education can really start from you know the beginning of life because sex education isn't literally about sex it's about uh protecting your body bodily autonomy and um feeling comfortable in it and I I'm a person who still dissociates from their body to this day. It, it's it's so hard to feel comfortable in your own skin when it's been violated, even, even if it wasn't in a sexual way. If your body was violated at a young age, it is so hard to know how to set those boundaries, how to know to say this makes me feel icky or uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, using the actual names for body parts when you're teaching children about their bodies you don't, it doesn't have to be an inappropriate thing to just tell your kid, this is your penis, this is your vulva, instead of using words like hoo-ha or thingy, because then if something does happen, your child does have the vocabulary to say, this is what happened to me. And it's not going to be enshrouded in shame that they've picked up on from you as a parent or guardian. And so much of that also has to do with like the gender roles we project onto our kids and, you know, like saying to a kid like, oh, he's going to be a real heartbreaker when he grows up (laughs) is so creepy, but it's not seen as creepy because, you know, it's like, it's just a joke, but you are still projecting adult sexuality onto a child when you make remarks about that. And again, I would never shame an individual parent for making a remark like that. I think it's really um, a a common thing to make, you know, like silly little, like, oh, they're flirting or, you know, like, oh, is that your girlfriend from elementary school? Like (laughs) that is so common. And it like saying this in this context, it's obviously so creepy, but I don't think anybody is even cognizant of the messages that that sends children. Yeah. And, um, and when it comes to gender roles, also like teaching your kid, you know, no matter how your kid identifies, like if you are a boy and, you know, you want to go cry, you want to play with dolls, like I'm not going to tell you what you can play with or how you can behave mm-hmm. based on your gender identity or the gender you were assigned at birth. Um, and conversely, like 
letting your girls, letting your non-binary children just do whatever the heck they want and express themselves however they want, you know, again, within reasonable boundaries. Um, Mm. However, we do have to keep this in mind that we are talking about like a a cyclical issue that happens throughout generations. And, um, you know, even with alcoholism and, Mm -hmm and abuse and, and that genetically carrying through generations. But on top of that, just like the way we choose to, to heal from our abuse, uh, we can really send such a strong message to kids that empower them. And again, it doesn't have to be a long talk. They're going to learn so much more from watching you confidently set your own boundaries, you know, like, Oh God, like sex is a, a, big deal and like we have to like set aside a time to talk about it. it's like no it's it's so baked into our society that it has to be baked into parenting as well if we're going to provide context to understand you know the book cover to Lolita I think there's right. a huge difference between you know being able to identify those things on your own or you're me and you're seeing that and romanticizing it because you don't have any other context. Right. And I know there's a lot of people who share that, that feeling when they first saw any version of Lolita that wasn't the original book. I don't think I could have read the book. I don't know that I would have even with the nuanced contextual clues picked up on the reality of it because I was so used to defending my own abusers talking about childhood sexual abuse as being something that can happen to any kid, not just little girls, not just little white girls. And furthermore, that it can be from any gender of adult. I have been asking everybody, do you think it is possible to adapt Lolita into something that is culturally useful as opposed to kind of what we've seen so far? I'm sure that there has been attempts made at this, you know, nothing that's made it, um, to the big screen, so to speak, but it's 2021. And, you know, it's been like 25 years since the last film rendition of this. Mm -hmm. Is it possible to revive the narrative in a way that is true to the text? I, I would like to think so. I think the question is, will society be ready to receive it? Because as we know, and you mentioned before, the male directors clearly read the book and were completely lost to the subtext. So I'm sure the same could be true for the movie, but I think it's possible. I would love to watch a movie like that. And I also just want to see more movies that are addressing, um, you know, adolescent sexuality in a healthy, non-exploitative way. Thanks again to Zoe for her time. You can find her at Thongria on all platforms and check out her store, Spectrum Boutique. There have been attempts to reconcile, not just with the legacy of Lolita, but challenging romanticizing abuse narratives in a number of mediums over the years. In fact, there's two novels written by women that attempt to tell the events of Lolita from Dolores' perspective. There is the 1995 novel, Lowe's Diary, by Italian writer Pia Perra, who portrays Dolores as a sadist and manipulator that implies that not only was Humbert Humbert not too bad of a guy, but he was also taking it easy on how much he demonized Dolores in the original book. Dmitry Nabokov, Vladimir's son, sued for copyright infringement to no avail. Ms. Lola, who I've spoken with on the show before, has an excellent analysis of this really 
wildly misguided book that I will uh, link in the description. Don't recommend. There's also Roger Fishbite, written by Emily Prager in 1999 as a full-on parody of the original novel. She updates the story, taking it out of the 40s. She calls Lolita Lucky and Humbert Fishbite, and the story is narrated by Lucky. I haven't read this book, and so I can't speak to it, but it didn't make much of a wave in its time and definitely wasn't considered the feminist reimagining of Lolita that it seemed to be trying for. Both of these works, though it sounds like Roger Fishbite is a more satirical version, marketed themselves on the basis of being an inverted Lolita, an updated Lolita, and on and on, because all of them assume that the resolution to a story narrated by a child sex abuser is for the abuse to actually be not that bad. That the way to create an active and identifiable protagonist in Dolores is to make her the bad guy. This is beyond misguided. It makes the abuse from Humbert have little to no impact, it increases our sympathy for the abuser, and it telegraphs that young people being abused had better become a wise beyond their years, hyper-criminal mastermind in order to survive. Oh, and it will also mean that you were the villain. This mentality has been presented as reclaiming over and over. And it can be really campy and a cathartic idea to reimagine your abuse where you had more agency, more power than you actually may have. But as it pertains to Lolita in particular, it reads far more like a translation of how the general public thought of Dolores already. In general, I think that audiences are so upset to see the reality of abused children in any media format that it's an easier sell to somehow implicate the child in the crime. Dmitry Nabokov was messy in many ways, but opposing Lowe's diary was a really smart hill to die on. One notable exception from this era, there's Paula Vogel's Pulitzer-winning play, How I Learned to Drive, from 1997. It's been recommended to me extensively, and I finally got a chance to read it last week. This play is the most successful, moving, and complicated depiction of grooming, incest, shame, and failure to intervene from those trusted adults that I've ever read in a dramatic format. The lead of the show, Lil Bits, as she's called, tells us the story of her being groomed by her uncle, who is a child sex abuser and child pornographer who is also suffering from PTSD from his service in World War II. Lil Bits feels deeply ashamed of being abused, confused about her feelings towards her uncle while coming of age in the 1970s. I don't want to spoil too much about the show, but it's a really moving piece that allows its protagonist to process abuse over time, and then at the end, to survive the experience. Recommended reading. Also, Mary Louise Parker was in the most famous production of this play, and she is my crush. But those are books from the 90s. More recently, I've read two fiction books from the past 10 years that seek to challenge the romance that the reception of Lolita normalized. Both of these books deal with a teacher grooming an underage student, and they do so through the eyes of female characters. Flee. One narrator is a predator, the other is a survivor. The first is Tampa by Alyssa Nutting, who, full disclosure, is my friend and former boss. I love her a lot. 
She writes essentially a female Humbert, an unrepentant child sex abuser, teaching eighth grade English and assaulting her young student. This protagonist, Celeste, narrates the book similar to how Humbert does, regularly steamrolling over her victim's trauma, amongst other similarities that I don't want to give full spoilers for. It is a tough read, and it's supposed to be, but I thought that the execution was really effective. It's the first time I experienced a narrative where a female child sex abuser is presented as just that. Celeste is knowingly benefiting from the quote-unquote too-pretty-for-prison complex, which was a term famously applied to Deborah Lefebvre, an attractive white 24-year-old teacher who assaulted a 14-year-old male student. Tampa explores the ways that society treats an adult woman assaulting an underage boy very differently than the reverse, as well as the vast privilege that Celeste benefits from strictly by being white, attractive, and married to a cop. Nutting did a talk with Roxanne Gay when the book was first released in 2013, and it generated quite a bit of controversy at the time. Gay mentions that the writing style kind of evoked Lolita for her, and Nutting replied with this. This type of story is so often fetishized in the popular media, and that got me thinking about the lack of novels whose protagonists are female predators, particularly sexual predators. There's a void there, and it's a conversation I felt compelled to start. I committed to the explicitness before I even began writing the book. In my mind, there was never a question of whether or not it was essential. If I was going to portray a dangerous character, I had to invest the text with the full amount of that danger, or it wouldn't be a just representation. To be successful, I knew that the book had to make readers feel exceptionally uncomfortable. Otherwise, I'd be whitewashing the topic. I'd actually go so far as to say our culture has a really hard time casting females as sexual predators of male victims, even when the male is underage. If a 13, 14-year-old boy sleeps with an adult female, there can be this narrative surrounding the act of it being a positive learning experience for him. That sort of attitude would never be applied toward a 13 or 14-year-old girl. The other book is My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell, published in 2020. Russell's text interacts with Lolita throughout the entire story. It is another story of grooming by a teacher, this time a male teacher, narrated by his teenage student Vanessa, who is assaulted by him over a course of years. The book jumps in timeline from his initiating the relationship in 2000 all the way through 2017, when an adult Vanessa is still struggling to see herself as a victim at the dawn of the Me Too movement. In Vanessa, we have a different kind of unreliable narrator. She is a person who has experienced child sex abuse, but is still in contact with her abuser years later. She is someone who is still processing a lot of trauma and figuring out how to navigate it. I won't give any more spoilers, but I found the book to be incredibly moving. And as Dolores is often presented to us as an imperfect victim, I really appreciate that Vanessa doesn't fit cleanly into the triumphant 2017 Me Too headlines and that she struggles when interacting with other survivors of assault, as well as the limitations of that movement. Kate Elizabeth Russell's use of Lolita an attachment to Dolores Hayes echoes the sentiments of a lot of people I've spoken to, as well as myself. Here's what she said about Dolores in an interview to promote the book in 2020. I saw a lot of similarities between her and me. Some of them were superficial, like we're both from New England, but also she's lazy and moody and she has a good sense of humor. 
You can find snippets of her real personality if you read the novel closely, and I did because I was always looking for her. The other thing that really stuck out to me about My Dark Vanessa is that Lolita by Nabokov is used as a grooming tool by the predatory teacher, who presents Nabokov's work to the 15-year-old Vanessa as a love story, and she reads it that way, like most of us did. This fictional account reflects the experience of many people who have reached out to me, including Alison Wood, who wrote about being groomed by an abusive teacher using Lolita in her 2020 memoir, Being Lolita. And it's here where I get to the absolute edge of wishing the book didn't exist. The fact that abusers can and have used the book to groom and harm people is fucking terrifying. And in the fictional world of My Dark Vanessa, and in Woods' real-life story in Being Lolita, the teenagers being abused only realize that Lolita has been framed to them in the most disingenuous, harmful way possible once they are out of their abuser's clutches. I would also recommend memoirs about CSA in general to better understand why Lolita's false legacy is so harmful. In addition to being Lolita, I really connected with Wendy C. Ortiz's Excavation, which also engages directly with Lolita as a real-life grooming tool. Or other memoirs about CSA and adult life, including Elizabeth Smart's My Story or I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. And even so, every book and play I just described explores a very narrow perspective in the grand scheme of things. They're all about the abuse of able-bodied cis white teenagers, just as Lolita is. These narratives are important, and their being effectively told absolutely moves things forward, but it always bears repeating that there is an urgent need to expand the scope of stories that are given focus as it pertains to child sex abuse, whether that means in publishing or movies or plays or the fucking news. What always needs to enter this conversation is the absolute necessity for making room for all kinds of survivors of abuse. We've discussed this in pieces across this series. There is still a dearth of media, both in reporting and in narrative projects reflecting these stories, of displaying equally, if not more common, examples of abuse narratives. Even now, CSA narratives are more likely to address the abuse of cis white characters. Even now, CSA narratives almost never address the sexual abuse of boys, or when they do, it's framed as a conquest or a joke instead of serious abuse. Even now, CSA narratives most often exclude stories of gay teens, trans teens, non-binary teens. The landscape of these movies is extremely straight, or if there is a queer character, they are often framed as the predator. Even now, CSA narratives are less likely to reflect the abuse of black girls or include black directors, even though black girls and women are far more likely to be sexually abused. Even now, CSA narratives in popular media don't make space for abuse experienced by Asian girls or address the cultural trends in some anime and certainly in lolicon content to hypersexualize and fetishize their bodies. There's an amazing video by video essayist Mina Lee about how the Japanese schoolgirl aesthetic was taken from teenagers and flipped to a very Lolita end. Actually, these male-led narratives said, teenagers are just dressing up to seduce older men, and that's feminist. When it's like, no, teenage girls were just trying to wear clothes, why is that so difficult? Even now, CSA narratives rarely address the abuse of indigenous girls and women, even though one in two experience sexual violence at some point in their lives, according to a UN report from 2014. 
So even in a world where we get Lolita right in adaptation, that's only a start. The inability or unwillingness to have a discussion on this topic in our culture have spores that reach out in every direction. So much of the most common types of CSA are not reflected at all in media. And when they are, it's far less likely that they're going to receive the same amount of support in marketing and distribution. A lot of why these conversations are prevented from being started or considered is because they don't line up with the goals of capitalism to do so. Feminism has historically centered cis white women overwhelmingly, often at the expense and oppression of everyone else. And that applies to CSA survivors as well. My next interview is with my friend and a brilliant artist and teacher, Jess Merwin. Jess is a non-binary mixed indigiqueer. They are Mi'kmaq, Scottish, Irish, and Welsh, and a filmmaker, educator, and curator based in Montreal. They also have a background in film programming and have seen a lot of movies that attempt to explore abuse with mixed results. I was really excited to hear their insights and to share some of our interview here. You know, you talked about like, coming in contact with like uh, Lolita as like, you know, a 12 year old, like, a, you know, I was reading, uh, you know, Alice in Wonderland and like all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. So um, I kind of like went into reading the book, I think maybe not as naive as somebody who was like picking it up for like the first time who might've been younger. Right. Um, like I very intentionally sort of sought it out because it was, I had studied literature and, mm-hmm. You know, it was like this great work of literature. <laughs> um, even though like I had experienced uh, childhood sexual abuse, mm-hmm. my personal story is so different to that of Lolita. So I didn't, I think I didn't really form like a strong attachment to Dolores or to, to the story of Lolita kind of for that reason. It was like, it was kind of like this weird thing where like I was very dissociated when I read the book. Yeah. And like dissociated, not necessarily just because of like the subject matter, but like I looked at it as like being like an academic experience. And I kind of regret that now because like, mm-hmm. you know, from from even just like listening to you talk about it and interview people about it, like there is so much more richness to the book. And I just sort of looked at it very coldly as like a thing that I had to like check off a list. I was helping administer this like training program for emerging filmmakers where. Okay. Um, you know, filmmakers would sort of like pitch an idea and then we'd end up making like four short films with four different ideas. Yeah. And one of the ideas that was pitched was like, um, again, this sort of like coming of age, like a uh, sexual, like maturing, like teen girl story. And mm-hmm. it was like very, even just like on the producer sort of side of it, like it was really difficult to try and justify one, why we were making this film, especially because it was like essentially a training project Right, right. And it was like, so why are we tackling the subject matter? And two, like, um, you know, the uh, director wanted to use, like, especially, like, Mm -hmm. non-actors and, like, very young non-actors. And I was like, again, like, why, 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 (laughs) you know, (laughs) why does that have have to be the decision, like, creatively? Yeah. You know, Um, because I don't think it's ethical. Like, we didn't just, like, emerge one day and you know uh and have this idea of like predatory men playing on like young girls right. um because i think this is a, a case where it's appropriate to speak about girls as opposed to women mm-hmm. um 
you know, like this narrative has been present in, in Western culture for a really, really long time. You know, uh, yeah. one of the sort of examples that like I thought of was um, the rape of Persephone. Okay. Um, where Persephone in, in Greek mythology, Persephone, the goddess of spring comes of age. So she's like, gets her period. So we can assume she's like 12, 13, maybe. Mm-hmm. And is kidnapped by Hades, who is at that point in time, uh, I mean, her, her uncle, but also a like, uh, perceived as being like a much older man. And Hades sort of tricks her and gets her to eat some pomegranate seeds. Okay. So she has to, so Persephone has to end up returning to the underworld. Um, and uh, where Hades ends up marrying her. Chill. Um, yeah, real chill time. Uh. Real, real cool chill time. Uh, yeah, the Greeks, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's times where you're like, Jesus. <laughs> and this is what Western culture is built upon. Cool, 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 cool. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, so like, so there's like a very like uh, early conversation about like or like early sort of example of like this idea of I mean and like don't even get me started on Zeus um and and like his multiple Mm. uh sexual assaults and rapes but uh yeah so here's this example of like Hades and Persephone and yet the story of Hades and Persephone is often um in a modern lens at least perceived as being very romantic I think that we have to actually be like very critical Mm. of like the underlying culture that exists and like, you know, it's like, well, why, why do we feel compelled to romanticize the story? And, um, you know, like one of my big pet peeves is actually um, a lot of like white uh, conspiracy culture. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it, it so frustrates me that people will go whole hog on something like QAnon mm-hmm. or, you know, even, um, you know, uh, like the satanic panic. You know, mm-hmm. um, people will go like full bore on that or, or even just like some of the like anti-gay conspiracy stuff that was going on too around the, like the AIDS pandemic. Like these were the things that I was growing up around. People will go whole hog on that. But like, yeah, when you, you sort of say like um, systemic racism is a thing and, uh, you know, indigenous women are eight times more likely to uh, be sexually assaulted than white women, even though they represent like less than 6% of the population. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when you talk about, you know, uh, missing and murdered indigenous women, girls and two-spirit people, um, you know, that number in the thousands and thousands and thousands. And like, that's something we have proof for. And yet people want to spend more time talking about like, some supposed pedophile ring that meets in like a pizza hut. It's like, okay, as a programmer too, like I, um, up until very recently, actually, I would say, although it still happens a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. like the amount of like films and like students. So you're like not even dealing with like people who are like an auteur. (laughs) (laughs) You're dealing with like some like shithead, pardon my language, but like some shithead at some film school who's like, I'm going to make this real edgy film. It's about rape Mm -hmm. Um, or it's about pedophilia or it's about this or it's about that. And it's like, you know, so when I was programming for festivals, I would end up watching, you know, like um, a not insignificant amount of short films that were like all about rape. Um, And that's kind of cooled off a little bit. Okay. recently and i think 
it is due to things like the Me Too movement becoming a little bit more visible, but like young male filmmakers, for some reason, it's like the only thing that they could like, like, oh, well, how do I develop a woman? Uh, well, I guess she could be sexually assaulted. And you're like, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah, you know, and, and like part of that is like what you see in media elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Like people just kind of reproduce like things that they're shown. Yeah. And the other side of that is just that like, um, that like, that also that like, I think there was so little resistance to it for so long. You know, I think that like for, for so long, you know, like Ava was saying, you know, there was, and, and still, like, still, there is, like, this championing of, like, you know, these narratives, but, excuse me, brutalization. Yeah. I feel like the, almost, like, the way to adapt Lolita is, um, and taking a page out of documentaries like uh, Surviving R. Kelly, mm-hmm. and actually, um, you know, take it into this whole other sort of, um, you know, realm of cinematic language where it would be like interviewing low, low, uh, I guess, interviewing Dolores. Yeah. And, and sort of like presenting her side of the story, um, from sort of like the, the position of somebody who survived this really horrendous experience, not only with like Humbert Humbert, but with Quilty too. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, does that step too far away from the Bokoffs like initial text like I just I'm not sure we can keep Humbert yeah I, I don't know I'm just yeah. I'm very jaded at this point of keeping Humbert in frame at all I know again like as a survivor of of you know childhood sexual abuse mm-hmm. but it's so much more nuanced than that and that's what I want fundamentally for Dolores because I think like you know not only just like the fan communities mm-hmm for the book but also just for like the people who find the book as and like use it as a way of being able to understand their own context mm-hmm. you know um and like use it as like a way of being able to start to find the words to talk about their own situation I think is really powerful and 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 is a reason for which I argue that we do need a good adaptation of Lolita yeah because like survivors deserve that like I think that you know like I think that like you know a lot of times when I when I look at things like representation Mm -hmm. um you know I don't think that we I think when we sort of think about representation it's it's like it's in this very limited scope of sort of being like um uh you know oh well we need to like have women be in things you know, when when we do include trans people in stories, when we do include women in stories, when we do include BIPOC folks in stories, mm-hmm. it allows people to see themselves in futures perhaps they couldn't have imagined or in like in ways perhaps they didn't imagine themselves. Mm-hmm. And that can be a really powerful thing. And like, and I think that if we had like a really good adaptation of Lolita or, or just even like, like you were saying, you know, like other stories about, childhood sexual abuse and and being a survivor like I think that that could be so life-affirming for so many people yeah Um, because like sexual childhood sexual abuse is so ubiquitous unfortunately Mm -hmm. you know um I remember uh in living having a roommate in my mid-20s say to me um 
that she was lucky because she had never been raped. I've had so many, I like so many people and so many friends and so many family members and so many like, you know, and, and so much of that, like trauma, you know, you end up just like carrying it and passing it down and carrying it and passing it down. And like, um, and it just like affects everything. Like, I think that we think of trauma sometimes as being like, you know, sort of like they do in Blackbird where it just like shuts your whole life down. And it's like, well, no, it's actually much more common that people sort of continue to lope on Mm -hmm. doing, you know, (laughs) surviving. Right. Because we're ingenious animals in terms of survival. (laughs) Um, But that doesn't mean that it isn't like ravaging parts of our life. There's, you know, uh, you can't always control what happens to the thing that you create once you put it out into the world, even if it's right. like, you know, um, and we talked about this a little bit um, on Bechtelcast when we talked about like Rhymes for Young Ghouls, like there's so many amazing things about that film mm-hmm. and it's so important to see. And yet, you know, 15 people, including myself, saw it in theaters mm-hmm. <laughs> and nobody like, no, nobody else did, um, you know? And so like, there's, there's a certain amount of like, you know, even if you sort of got to the point where you could make, a film adaptation of Lolita, you could get it distributed. Mm-hmm. Humbert would be, you know, seen for what he is. It's still like, would people, would people see that? Like, would, would, right. you know, would people be interested enough in that like paradigm shift to engage with it? Like we've seen even just like, and this isn't like the most like salient example, but like how people react to like, a black stormtrooper, you know, or like an all female reboot of Ghostbusters. Like, are people ready for an, an like an ethical adaptation of Lolita? I don't know. I think if anything, there is so much material out here, Jamie, that you could do like a, a whole season two just about like things that get compared to Lolita. Thank you again to the amazing Jess Merwin. And you can check out more of their work at jessmerwin.com. In preparing for this episode, I've watched quite a few movies from the last 15 years that attempt to address child sex abuse and the pressures that are put on kids at an increasingly young age to sexualize themselves. The trends that Jess describes manifest pretty cleanly here, even though there's several of the movies I'm about to mention that I generally like and think accomplish net good. I don't have time to get into any of them in depth, but I want to give you an idea of what sorts of stories have been brought to the forefront since Adrian Lyne's 1997 Lolita. And I want to note that most of the movies I'm going to describe here do show abuse of a child in one way or another on screen. There are stories about child sex abuse survivors who come to terms with their abuse or begin to process it while they're still in the midst of their abuser. There's Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire, a story of a black teenage survivor navigating sexual abuse, poverty, and racism, a movie that was pretty controversial when it first came out. There's also Tim Roth's directorial debut, The War Room. Tim Roth, I learned, was a survivor of child sexual abuse himself, and in the movie, a son slowly realizes that his father is sexually abusing his sister while other members of the family remain complicit out of fear. There's Rhymes for Young Ghouls, the movie Jess and I were discussing in the interview, a Jeff Barnaby movie about a Canadian indigenous teenager and survivor of abuse in the 70s, living on a reservation and traversing the abusive, racist reservation school system. 
In another category, we have the slew of movies about people who are processing their trauma as adults. Movies that examine the ways in which the lingering effects of child sex abuse can follow a person through their lives. There's the tale written and directed and pulling from the real-life experiences of Jennifer Fox about Laura Dern's character revisiting abuse, only to realize that, upon seeing photos of herself from the time, that she was much younger than she remembers. There's Una, a 2016 movie starring Rooney Mara, adapted from the play Blackbird, in which a 28-year-old woman finds and confronts a man who sexually abused and attempted to abduct her when she was 13. Her abuser served his time in prison, four years, not enough, but upon confronting him, she finds that he hasn't really internalized what he had done during his time in the carceral system. There's the adult survivors of abusive priests in Spotlight, the only movie on this list that doesn't show child abuse on screen. There's movies that attempt to show the pressures put on young people coming of age. Cuties, a highly controversial French movie by Maimouna Ducore from 2020, explores a French black Muslim adolescent's attempt to reconcile her life at home with a religious upbringing with the demand to sexualize oneself with navigating her own sexuality and identity. The discussion around this movie has been fraught and controversial, which I don't have the time to get into here in full, but there's a lot of valid conversation that Cuties has generated. The cinematography in this movie is, for my money, uh, what? And my general feeling is that it's an interesting story told in a deeply exploitative and irresponsible way toward its underage stars. But the kickoff for the backlash in the U.S. was the movie's marketing. The movie was released on Netflix in the U.S., and they released a promotional poster of the Cuties dance team posed provocatively to sell the movie, in spite of the fact that the core message of the movie seems to want us to challenge that to some extent. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? 
that's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Then there's the category of movies about revenge. I saw Emerald Fennel's Promising Young Woman last week, and it bodied me emotionally. It's about the friend of a sexually abused college student who is avenging her death from the men who sexually abused her. But not just her abusers, also bystanders, enablers, and authority figures who knew and did nothing, either because it was easier or because they stood to make some money out of it. There's also revenge tales that end a little more cathartically. One that I remember seeing early on was Hard Candy, in which a young Elliot Page plays a preteen who deliberately entraps an adult child sex abuser and murderer, played by Patrick Wilson. The 13-year-old threatens to castrate him and forces him to confront and admit to the crimes he's committed while being humiliated. And there's more. There's Bad Education and The Handmaiden and A Teacher. And I didn't even touch TV. The list goes on. And there's definitely a pattern I've noticed in movies that address child sex abuse that are very successful and those that aren't. It's not quite as simple as they were directed by well-regarded white male directors and therefore are inherently taken more seriously because we live in a society, although uh, that is often true. But what really struck me in watching these movies is that the movies that tend to get more praise are not just more often men directing movies about the abuse of young girls. It also appears that movies about child sex abuse that show you that child sex abuse are more likely to be praised and awarded things. And the artist who really clarified that for me is my friend Eva Vives, who I was thrilled to interview for this final episode. I was lucky enough to work with Eva on her feature debut, All About Nina, back in 2018. We met because she had asked a mutual friend if he knew of any female stand-ups who had experienced sexual abuse, and guess who came up? My phone started a ringing, and uh, Eva has very graciously since become an amazing friend and mentor to me. Eva was raised in Catalonia and then moved to the U.S. to become a filmmaker. She is an incredible writer-director who had previously co-written Raising Victor Vargas, and she's since directed episodes of The Affair, Party of Five, and is currently working on a new feature. All About Nina is about a stand-up comic played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who is in and out of an abusive relationship while navigating her burgeoning comedy career, then meeting a person who she may actually be able to love and have a healthy relationship with. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, fast forward 15 seconds. But the climax of the movie is Nina having a breakdown on stage, revealing that she was sexually abused as a child by her father. It's an approach to discussing child sex abuse that's pretty unusual in a way that I found and still find unique. We meet and get to know Nina without knowing the worst thing that's ever happened to her, like you would ordinarily meet any person. You see her relationships and her choices, and you form your opinions throughout the movie, then boom, Nina tells the world what she hasn't yet been able to confront, and it changes your perspective on what she's been doing the whole time. I think it's really effective, and it hits both on how common this kind of abuse can be, 
and how it manifests over time in ways that many might not guess. So I got to catch up with Eva to get her insights on Lolita, her experiences tackling issues of sexual abuse and CSA specifically in her art as a survivor herself. So let's check out that interview. I don't know. Should we? I, I mean, I think so much of what is important to me about this stuff, and I think maybe what you're talking about, like I was going to say, what are those movies and are they told by survivors? Because I think right. it's the perspective of it that's so important, you yeah. know, and that and that matters so much. Like, why why did Nabokov tell this story and for whom did he tell it? I don't remember how I first heard about it, but but I do remember um, consciously going to my school library in high school and asking for it. Because I couldn't see it on the shelf. And I remember that the, that the librarian, who was an older, or she seemed older to me, she probably wasn't. But, you know, when you're young, everybody seems old. Who was an American woman who yeah. kind of looked like Big Bird a little bit. Like, you know, <laughs> sort of that kind of curly hair and stuff. Sort yeah. of frowned and was like, Lolita, you want to read Lolita? And I was in, you know, I was in sort of defense mode. Like, yeah, because I knew what it was about. You know, I think they might have ordered it. And so that I could read it. One of the reasons why I think it's significant, and I say this is also, and talk about my own um, sort of defensiveness about it, is because, you know, I was being raped at home by my father, mm. um, which is something that lasted eight years. And I think it was the first instance that I had ever heard of anything, a book or a movie, that in any way um, showed that kind of relationship. And I, I think that's why I wanted to read it. But I was. Um, sort of defiant about it because, and I do think it's important to say that often survivors, especially when it's happening, are. It's something I try to show at Nina, right? Like sure. one of the ways that you get through that kind of abuse is to um, pretend even to yourself that it's okay. And right. in fact, that it's great. Right. I mean, if not great, but that like, you know, I bought into the shit my father told me, which was, you know, that we were ahead of others and, um, you know, that... The, the sort of um, compromised, you know, like old school morality didn't understand what we were doing, like that kind of thing. Right. I mean, I think I knew deep down, I was like, really? <laughs> but, you know, when you're when you're 13 or 14 and you're under that kind of abuse, yeah. I, I don't think I was in any shape to really like go question it at the time. And again, it at least feels good to tell yourself that that might be the case. And hey, here's a book that everybody has been talking about for years that's considered a classic that's about this very topic. So I went, you know, I read it and I kind of couldn't believe it. I was like, holy shit, this is, it was a, as close as it got to my father and I mm -hmm. as anything else I've ever read, even though, you know, I knew that, that um, obviously uh, Humbert is not her, her biological dad yeah. in the book. But the, the thing that, that really like sort of, um, you know, it's, it, and again, I've not read it probably since then. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, and I, I, in fact, I think whatever book or copy I had of it, I threw it away. I really have no love for the book or him, <laughs> yeah. um, as you might, as you might uh, imagine. And so, but I'm, but again, I'm glad that we're talking about it from this perspective. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it was that whole middle part of them going away, um, you know, where he kidnaps her and they travel all over the place and they go into you know motel after motel and mm. he rapes her basically i can't remember how long it is uh, it goes on for it goes on for a year yeah. yeah i mean just you know it's i think an astounding and remarkable uh you know portrait of uh, an abuser um yeah. 
I think the fact that he called it Lolita is, you know, so um, disingenuous. It's just a disingenuous book from, from front to bottom. And so is the, you know, the what everything he said about it. You know, the book is about him and his perspective mm-hmm. and how he feels about Lolita. It's mm-hmm. not about her in any way, nor does it intend to be. The other thing that really got to me and that I felt very sort of put put upon because of, of course I identified with her mm-hmm. was the ending that and I seem to remember that he goes back to see her years later when she's pregnant and mm-hmm. I think maybe living in a she's like 17 maybe yeah yeah and she opens the door and she's got the big belly and he kind of like my impression at the time and I again I've not read it was that he sort of almost looks down on her like oh like she used to be so beautiful and so meaningful and now look at her kind of thing Right. Um, so the impression I took from it was that, you know, once you grew up, you were no longer good or useful. That ending or the idea that, again, um, one of them would ask for forgiveness, if that's what the 90s movie does, I think is also sort of preposterous and dangerous. Because, again, mm-hmm. there's this idea that, like, just because you ask for forgiveness means that you should be forgiven. I think it puts an, an incredible amount of stress on yeah, I think you and I have talked about this. I don't believe that forgiveness is necessary, but I think sure. there is a real push towards um, forgiveness as a solution. And I think it really hurts a lot of survivors because it focuses on that instead of getting the rage out and getting right. all the stuff that you were not allowed to say or do or defend yourself at the time out of your system, hopefully in therapy and with friends who believe you and who... Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, validate you. I think one thing, you know, I remember years ago seeing a movie, uh, which I shall not name, but um, mm-hmm. was about, I think, I think it involved rape more than anything. And, and one of the characters in the movie was a chef. And in the credits, which I was looking after, it said chef, chef, chef consultant. And I thought, <laughs> and where's the rape consultant? I will educate pretty much at any you know, at at any given moment, mm-hmm. <laughs> but because I think it's where we are now, and and I do see it as part of my duty. But um, but I just want to say, you don't have to talk about it just because it happened to you if you don't want to. And plenty right. of survivors don't. Right. You know, survivors can survive and have healthy relationships and lives mm-hmm. um, with the right help and support. I think that's really, really important to know because the few instances I ever saw of this stuff in certainly in movies um, were always tragic. This is the, the, the examples I always had when any of this came up, including rape for a long time in, in movies was that you would end up as an, you know, an addict in the gutter or a sex worker or, or whatever. And again, I don't mean that in any way as a, as a shameful or insulting thing to anybody who does go, who does do that or goes through it. Mm -hmm. And there are very real reasons why somebody, you know, might end up doing something like that. I'm just saying that the perspective has always been like, if this happens to you, your life is destroyed, which a book like Lolita also puts forward, right? Like it's only important to the author in so much as how he experienced her. I am really a strong believer in not showing sexual violence Mm -hmm. um, on screen. I don't think that you have to show a child being sexualized in order for us to understand that it's a terrible thing that a child is being sexualized. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think, I think that we all by now understand that rape, sexual abuse, et cetera, are horrendous crimes. And I don't want to fucking see it on screen. And I don't think you should ask 
you know, children to even act it out or adults for that matter. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, I think that there are other ways in which we can show the psychological impact or any kind of impact, even physical, that it, that it might have on people without um, recreating it. I, I certainly feel this way about rape scenes. Uh, I cannot I can't tell you one that I think is necessary in any movie. Most of the movies that get a ton of awards attention and that get kind of, I mean, that most of these movies, almost without exception that I can think of, show it, which yeah. I agree isn't necessary, but I, but I feel like is still, I don't know that I, maybe rewarded isn't the, the right word, but I think it's sort of a lack of imagination to say the least on the part of the filmmaker, right? you know, beyond also like the issue here isn't. Like, of course, the abuse is, is happening, but the real issue is what happens to a child when that is being done. Not in the moment. I mean, yes, yeah, you know, but like the repercussions of it, you know, I really wanted to say that because I think that's important as we move forward, even from a female point of view. You know what I mean? And again, I totally I respect survivors who feel otherwise. I just that's my opinion, you know. Totally. I say also as somebody who like has been criticized by mostly women for showing a topless woman in my movie which i also found really interesting (laughs) really you know so again yeah like issues of perspective are so important like a couple of women were like i felt like that that was such a do thing to do my um intention with that scene was to actually show her nudity in a way that was not sexual now you know if it if it turns a dude on to see her tits well that's his issue but (laughs) it was about her vulnerability and her also being naked alone in her house doing her work, which to me felt very realistic and very much me, too, you know, like yeah. and other women that I know that like you're alone in your house. You don't need to put on a bra. And actually, this is the conversation I also had with Mary about it. I said to her, it's more important to me that you're comfortable than naked. So if you don't want to be naked in the scene, don't be. It. But again, to me, it's not about sexuality which i think is the other thing that um people still don't get about sexual abuse it's not really it's not about sex it's about control and power it goes against my instincts not to prepare more for something like this like normally i would have like come back and read the book and listen to your whole podcast but i Mm -hmm. think because um because of you know the effects of it and then also obviously we know each other and i know you'll understand when i say like i can't really listen to six hours of Lolita right now. <laughs> no, that's um, fine. Which I know you're you're going through as well. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it felt, but also I'm like, that's kind of liberating. And I just sort of gave you my visceral response to it. And, and I am yeah. glad to talk about it because I, I, and I did hear the first part where you were talking about how you came to it and all that, which is not so, you know, dissimilar to my experience of it, that this is somehow fucking offered to young girls as something to read. Thank you so much to Eva Vives. I cannot recommend her work enough. Speaking with Eva didn't just kind of clarify realizing that movies seem more likely to succeed when they explicitly depict abuse, and also clarified that imperfect victims don't normally get much of a spotlight in mainstream media. Working on this show has really challenged and reinforced my views on what a survivor of abuse can look and behave like. In Dolores' case, one of the primary excuses made to make the severe abuse she experiences her fault is the fact that she had a crush on Humbert when he first moved in when she was 12. 
When I started working on this show, my response to her having a crush on him was, that couldn't have been true, no way. But the truth is, so fucking what if it was true? When I was 12, I absolutely had crushes on adults. And if they had appeared to reciprocate that, it's entirely possible that I could have tried to experiment with that power. To ignore the fact that Dolores was a normal 12-year-old coming into her own sexually and navigating her identity and experimenting with power would be to just label her inconvenient as a victim or to imply that only certain types of behavior mean you deserve justice and care. This sentiment is more succinctly expressed in CSA survivor Tashmika Turok in her essay, Casting Aspersions. Why do we always lay the burden of ending sexual violence at the feet of those who have survived it? I've talked a lot about how we see ourselves in Dolores, and I would be lying if her story doesn't pull out parts of my own history. I think that her story does that for a lot of people, and that that's a powerful thing. Dolores does not fit the perfect victim narrative because of how she's blamed for having a crush, for navigating abuse from her own guardian to escape, for escaping to another abuser because that was her only option. A lot of what I think has really mangled Dolores Hayes' legacy in popular consciousness is people levying questions at her that are often the same questions that oppress survivors. Why didn't you leave? Why didn't you tell someone sooner? Why did you go back? Why didn't you say something? making it all her fault instead of considering the context of what she is experiencing. These questions don't take into consideration, what if you have nowhere to go? What if you don't have the financial independence or legal ability to leave? What if you do tell someone, but they don't believe you? What if you love the person who is abusing you and it takes time to acknowledge and understand what's going on? What if you didn't realize that someone you thought loved you could do that? In my experience as an adult, whenever I got asked questions like, why didn't you leave? I got angry and defensive and embarrassed. I felt extreme shame. When a school counselor told me that assaults taking place off campus weren't her problem, and knowing from friends who had tried that going to the police was the most traumatic, biggest waste of fucking time I could think of, who do you turn to? And after enough time passed, I decided I would try talking to the fucking police. But you will not be shocked to learn that that went nowhere. And this experience was happening to me in the year 2014, just a couple years shy of the world asking you to believe women. My own experiences happened nearly 70 years after Dolores's, and there was still not a fucking chance of getting any justice. Shit sucked that bad in 2014, and in most regards, shit sucks that bad right now. The context here is critical. This was sexual abuse that happened to a 12-year-old child in 1947. And ultimately, the societal image of Dolores is built around behavior that she displays in around a 24-hour period, in the day that Humbert picks her up from camp, the day before he drugs her for the first time, the day before he rapes her for the first time, the day before she learns her mother is dead and she is permanently in the clutches of a man who just raped her three times. When she's picked up from camp, Dolores' behavior, as Humbert describes it, is bold and vibrant. She jokes that she's been horribly unfaithful to him. She initiates a kiss with him, calling it the kissing game. And she's essentially experimenting a little with power. And when I was starting the show, I think there's a part of me that rejected this. You know, sure, surely Humbert is lying. But even if he isn't, none of this behavior from a 12-year-old 
means that she was inviting the destruction of her entire life from a child sex abuser, or that she was a partner in crime or a seductress. To her, at this point in the narrative, Dolores is trying to figure out what's going on. Humbert was a stranger that she had a crush on, who had already assaulted her before she had even left for camp. But now he's married to her mom. The unfair image we have of her as a seductress is a kid trying to rationalize what this adult man has already done to her, navigating her own sexuality and adolescence in what she probably considers at this point in time to be relative safety. Because as all this is happening, Dolores assumes that she's on her way home and that she'll see her mom any minute. I can't overstate what a disservice it is to define her legacy by this afternoon. Experimenting with power as an adolescent does not entitle a 37-year-old adult man to a child's body ever, and it completely ignores how much her life changes just hours after this scene. She was 12 in 1947. As we discussed in episode 4, there was next to no mental health support made to victims of abuse at this time, certainly none for children, and no protocol on how to interview children who had been sexually abused in a non-coercive way. Why didn't Dolores tell the police? If you're reading the book carefully, Dolores and Humbert encounter police all the time in their travels, often in situations that make Humbert look more than a little suspicious. No one ever did anything. Why didn't she tell an adult that she trusted? I mean, my God, Dolores went to school for a year around teachers that thought something was wrong with her for not being more interested in sex. Instead of speaking with her or having her speak with a mental health professional, they turned to her abuser, who of course deflects everything in order to continue abusing. Why didn't she tell anyone? Because Humbert constantly threatened her with the idea that she would be thrown into the foster system if he ever experienced a consequence. Being surrounded by people you would commonly associate with adults I trust, who fail to notice or care that Dolores is abused, is part of why I think she is such a powerful figure to those who have been. Everyone thinks they're going to be a hero in that moment, but no one in Dolores' life is. Dolores is failed by her mother, by the authorities, by her teachers and her neighbors. The only people who listen to her are girls her own age, who are most likely to be disbelieved, and another abuser like Claire Quilty who knows full well that the cloak of respectability makes it much easier for abusers to thrive. Takes one and no one. She is failed by every system she encounters, and these same systems have responded by telling her that she failed. The last thing about rereading Lolita this time that stuck out to me was that last scene where Humbert Humbert sees Dolores when she's 17 and pregnant and asking him for money so that she can survive. I mentioned this in the first episode that this scene always really affected me in a way that I couldn't even explain, but I, but I think I can now. I do think that how Humbert presents himself in that scene is fantasy. He gives her money. He feels bad for ruining her life. He figures out he really did love her. And these are the elements that every adaptation focuses on, because that's what Humbert Humbert wants you to focus on. What really strikes me here is how Dolores is in this scene. This is where the value lies, I think. This scene is presented to us as Humbert's last stand to gain our favor as a jury. This is a scene that, to those inclined to sympathize with him, indicates that Humbert realizes that he harmed Dolores and wants to make amends with her. It's essentially fiction inside of fiction, because what's ignored in this interpretation is, well, a lot. Let's take a look at the scene. 
I don't care how Humbert feels here. What I care about is that Dolores reached out to her abuser and former guardian as an absolute last resort. In her letter to him, she says this, quote, Pardon me for withholding our home address, but you may still be mad at me, and Dick must not know, unquote. She doesn't want to see him. Humbert's tracking her down is one final violation, a final disregard for her wishes. And that's if you don't count how he erases her in the text of his book. Dolores' abuser shows up on her doorstep unannounced, and he comes with an agenda. Here's what we learn. Dolores escaped from Humbert's clutches only to land in Quilty's clutches, another unrepentant child sex abuser who insists that the 14-year-old participate in filming porn. She says no, instead working jobs as a waitress before meeting Dick Schiller, a Korea veteran who she cares about deeply but does not seem to be in love with. She admits this. What I never really processed about this scene is that in spite of her being married and pregnant and more in control of her life than she once was, she still hasn't felt comfortable telling Dick about the abuse she experienced with Humbert. When Humbert shows up, all Dick knows is that Humbert is Dolly's father, and Dolores begs Humbert not to say anything else. Even when she's more in control of her life than she's ever been, she still lacks someone she can completely trust. And finally, after Humbert spews his bullshit of, I loved her all along, look at me, Dolores does get one moment of rebellion from her former abuser. Humbert says he will give her the money, money that's owed to her anyways from her mother's estate, and Dolores assumes that he's asking her to have sex with him in a hotel in order to get it. It's not a ridiculous assumption on her part. Remember, that is exactly how she was expected to save up money to get away from him at age 13 and 14. And for the first time, Dolores tells Humbert, no, she is not going to do that. Humbert gives her the money anyways, because it's hers. He asks her to come with him because he's decided that he has actually loved her the whole time. She says no again. Humbert does not control her fate in the direct sense anymore. For denying him would have a price in the form of abuse during her childhood, she has formed a support system around her, and she says no. And this time, saying no does not mean that she has to transfer to another abuser, and she doesn't need to capitulate to his physical abuse or his threats. She tells him no, and he has no choice but to respect her wish. This is what hit for me. His control over her is gone, but that doesn't mean that she's won. The, the damage to Dolores Hayes' life is clear. If Humbert had never manipulated her family, I still secretly think managed to get rid of her mother and destroy her support system by asserting himself as her guardian, she wouldn't be in this position. She wanted to be an actor. She was the best tennis player at her school. She was smart. She had potential. She had difficulties and loss and growing pains that her mother couldn't handle. But there's no doubt that Dolores Hayes' life would have been so different if Humbert Humbert hadn't appeared in it. Even he has to admit it. Quote, Nothing could make my Lolita forget the foul lust I inflicted upon her, unless it can be proven to me, to me as I am now, today, with my heart and my beard and my putrefaction, that in the infinite run, it does not matter a jot that a North American girl child named Dolores Hayes had been deprived of her childhood by a maniac, unless this can be proven, and if it can, then life is a joke, I see nothing for the treatment of my misery, unquote. And yes, that is the classic self-pitying Humbert bullshit style, but there is some truth in there. So yes, Humbert puts a bullet in Quilty, who gives a shit, as far as I'm concerned, it's the only decent thing he's done, but it appears that Nabokov wants us to believe that he kills Dolores too. 
As John Ray tells it, Dolores dies giving birth to a son in 1952, a final, strangely gendered punishment. But her childhood was taken from her by her abuser, and by a society that made her realize from a very young age that telling the truth would only make her life harder. It's a really cruel fate, and and one I still find to be extremely harsh coming from the pen of a child sex abuse survivor who lived to write it. Probably the only thing I like about the Stanley Kubrick adaptation is that Lolita lives at the end, but that's not how the story goes. The scene I just described takes place only three years after Dolores escapes Humbert's clutches. Three years, she's still a kid, and encountered only more abuse and hardship after escaping him. What really strikes me is, in spite of the strength she shows here and the life that she builds for herself against every odd, she still reflexively apologizes to Humbert for quote-unquote cheating on him. There's no way that she's gotten the chance that she deserved to process all the harm that had been inflicted on her. Here's a kid trying to build a life away from the abuse that she suffered in order to raise a kid on her own without anyone that she trusts with this information. Dolores deserved more because she represents a lot of people. I've been thinking about my grandmother quite a bit. She was born two years before Dolores. It was very complicated and and sad. My grandma wasn't a very nice person to most of us, certainly not to her daughters or her husband, and I wasn't allowed to see her or interact with her after I was five years old. She suffered from mental illness and alcoholism almost her entire life, but she was never willing to get help for what she was struggling with. A lot of that, I believe, had to do with how she was raised. In the 40s and 50s and much later, admitting that you need help indicated weakness, that something was wrong with you, that you were lesser. She was too ashamed, I think, to confront those problems. And in a lot of ways, it it led to her isolating herself from most of the people in her life all the way up until her death. It hits for me especially because although she was never willing to see a mental health professional in her lifetime, I am pretty nearly certain that I have the same mental illness she did, and getting help for it has changed the direction of my life, even when it fucking sucks. The reason that she's been on my mind is because uh, when I was a teenager, my grandmother told people that she had been sexually abused as a child by her brother. I don't remember what the circumstances were that made her bring it up, but I do remember that as a kid, it didn't seem like many people believed her, and I didn't question it. This would have been the late 2000s, and while she truly had nothing to gain by bringing this up, it still generally was not believed. And I think about that in the context of everything else about her life, and without excusing the abuse and pain she inflicted on the family, I can't imagine that kind of pain. And to come forward with something like that in your 70s and still almost no one believes you. This was a woman who lied to us about a lot of things, but on this point, I see no reason not to believe her, and many family members have changed their minds over the years. For the entirety of my grandma's life, there was not any public encouragement to believe those who had suffered abuse. It's so bleak to consider, but experiencing abuse for me was comparatively easier. At least someone believed me eventually, and I was living in a time where there were tools and resources to navigate with. I think that we forget sometimes, 1947 talking about PTSD, mental health, hell, feminism at all, outside of voting and having a job under duress. 
there's not that much going on in these conversations in post-World War II in the U.S. My grandma came of age in one of the least empowering times for survivors of assault or for women in the past century in the U.S. And I didn't really know her, but I know enough about the time she came of age in to know that coming forward for her was really not an option. And seeing Dolores in this context, I I had to go... (laughs) They have quite a bit in common. It's, I, had to, I had to go on a walk. She and my grandfather were married the same year that Nabokov published Lolita in 1955, over 50 years before she ever spoke about her abuse out loud. And still no one believed her. I've been thinking about my mom, who was born in the 60s and only recently started really dealing with events that happened to her when she was a young adult. And I'm encouraged by her open mind and forgive herself the shame about things that weren't her fault, starting in just kind of the past couple of years. And I can also see how that shame was projected onto me when I was struggling with abuse. I can see how I projected my own shame onto others before I was willing to deal with things. So no, Dolores Hayes is not a perfect victim, because no one is. She didn't live to get to tell her own story. The person who destroyed her life got to do that. As it stands, she is really one of the only cultural figures that represents someone navigating child sex abuse, but it's 2021, and it's still her fault to a lot of people. There are a few things that I feel more sure about after working on this show for the past eight months? First, that there is a desperate, pressing need to change the way we talk about child sex abuse as a culture. And by that, I mean we need to try to talk about it. If we're at a point where a cult like QAnon can disenfranchise survivors of child sex abuse with conspiracy theories, how much clearer could it be that we have not had an honest conversation about how to prevent it? There is work to be done in the psychology space. There is work to be done in the education space, in the parenting space. And as with many things, having this discussion comes hand in hand with dismantling the racial, sexual, and gender-based prejudices that come with it. Because the numbers are there. It is a near certainty that if you have not experienced sexual abuse yourself, you know someone who has. So what good could it possibly do to not challenge the cultural narrative that empowers abusers and reassures non-abusers who are apathetic towards the issue? It helps nobody. It does nothing. I'm not saying that it's easy, but as Zoe was describing earlier, it's a matter of empowering young people to recognize abusive tendencies instead of being encouraged to accept it and even glorify it. It's a matter of finding ways for those at risk to abuse before harming someone. Another thing I've learned is what being labeled as a Lolita does to you, whether it's done literally, as it was done with Sue Lyon, or whether it's done figuratively, to suggest that being a person navigating their own sexuality while being abused somehow makes it your fault. And I've learned that telling an honest story about abuse that does not put an underage actor at risk by showing abuse explicitly doesn't tend to make money. And I hate how cynical that sounds. But I think a lot of the reason that media that reaches us does so is because it's marketable. It's low risk. That's changed to an extent with the internet, but I don't think as much as we would like to believe. Part of why Lolita is such an effective book, I think, is because it's written by an excellent writer who is a survivor of child sexual abuse who didn't give a shit if he made any money off of it. 
And that last part, unfortunately, is critical. By all accounts, on top of hiring male creators with little to no insight on the subject matter in adaptation, any insight included in the project at its beginning was eliminated when that old capitalistic logic kicked in. This happens in every adaptation of Lolita. We're not going to give you money if the protagonist is a bankable movie star playing an irredeemable child sex abuser. So no, Dolores Hayes has not gotten a fair shot. And that makes it a lot easier to continue to use her image to oppress other survivors. In terms of course-correcting popular media that blames people for the abuse they experience, Dolores is a very logical place to start. A good adaptation of Lolita is not going to change everything. There is a need for stories about child sex abuse that centers survivors of all kinds. But I do think that a thoughtful adaptation of Lolita that prioritizes Dolores Hayes could give us some amount of closure on how our culture thinks about this story. And I think that that's absolutely a worthwhile thing to do. There is a way to make Humbert the despicable person he is through adaptation. He tells us hundreds of times who he is. There is a feasible adaptation where he tries to win your favor and loses. Because the thing that is always true with Lolita is it matters how it's framed to you. I would love to live in a media landscape where saying Lolita is not shorthand for underage person who deserves and is turned on by being sexually abused, because there shouldn't be a fucking word for that. It's not a thing. And that's not who Dolores Hayes was. I think drawing attention to this cultural fallacy could make people think differently, both audiences who have spent decades of their adult life thinking Lolita was asking for it, and for young audiences being introduced to the story under false pretenses to encourage them to think of this kind of abuse as normal. Especially after speaking with Eva, I do think that there need to be more stories about survivors who are able to thrive. Lolita is not that story, but I know that it has a lot of value. Humbert and Nabokov's immortalizing the image of Lolita killed off the reality of Dolores Hayes, just as she is killed off in the book. But her story mattered, and no matter what garbage book cover tells you it's the only convincing love story of the century, that's not true. Dolores Hayes is in there, and just as scholars and artists and everyday people who see themselves in mythic figures have torn through the bullshit that abused characters have been mired in since BC, Dolores deserves that same chance. She is a uniquely American mythic figure who speaks to the universal societal plague that is CSA, child sex abuse, that no one wants to talk about. And when no one talks about it, nothing changes. And maybe it sounds silly to say, justice for Dolores, you know, justice for a person who is fictional. But it isn't silly, I don't think, because she represents a lot to a lot of people across many generations. She means a lot to me. There are entire communities, hundreds of thousands of people over the past 65 years who have connected with this character because they saw her in this text. They saw themselves or their friend or their sibling or their parent, and they saw how the world misinterpreted this character's circumstance. And when they ran out of things to see about her, they kept looking because Dolores Hayes represents a person who deserved to survive. And a lot of people see themselves in that. She deserved more and didn't get it because survivors of abuse deserve more and rarely get it. Her abuser was taken at his word because historically that is overwhelmingly the case. 
and she's killed before she ever gets to find her peace with it or thrive in spite of it. There is a poem by Nabokov called On Discovering a Butterfly. It's short and it's beautiful and it's about a butterfly, not a 13-year-old survivor, but it, just listen, here's how it concludes. Dark pictures, thrones, the stones that pilgrims kiss, poems that take a thousand years to die, but ape the immortality of this red label on a little butterfly. Dolores's red label has been misread, and it doesn't need to take a thousand years for us to try and read it closer. Everything you knew about Lolita is wrong. Dolores Hayes is a figure worth fighting for. So will that ever happen? You tell me. This was Lolita Podcast. Lolita Podcast is an iHeartRadio production. It was written and hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, produced by Sophie Lichterman, Beth Ann Macaluso, Miles Gray, and Jack O'Brien. It was edited by the amazing Isaac Taylor. Music was from Zoe Blade. Our theme was from Brad Dickert. And my guest voices this week were Caitlin Durante and Robert Evans as Vladimir Nabokov. Uh, I want to sincerely thank everyone that has been with me in the journey of making this show. I want to thank the members and moderators of our Discord who have been so kind and so open with their experiences and with each other. I want to thank my partner and my very stinky pets. I don't know how I would have um, gotten this show done without them. Uh, So thank you for an amazing ride here. I think I'm going to make a podcast about hot dogs next. Bye! Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.